listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. We've got a pretty good understanding of how the world works, but we are still learning and probably will until there's no more world left. But we got here as well on the shoulders of revolutionary thinkers and scholars, and this week's episode is about a book called The Age of Uncertainty, How the Greatest Minds in Physics Changed the Way We See the World by Tobias Herter. Keith, a really interesting book, and you actually sent me a video that kind of explained what this book is getting at. Tell me about it. Yeah, so the video clip was of Jacob Bronowski, a Polish-British scientist who visited Auschwitz around the same time that I was visiting Auschwitz, 1972. The film footage that is shown then cannot be done today. Auschwitz as a site has been tidied up. It's now on the World Heritage List. It's still a grim place to visit, but it's no longer as untidy as it was less than 30 years after the war. So the book is a huge study. I've got it here. It runs into hundreds of pages. <laughs> it is thick. It's not light reading, 350 pages. Tobias Herter, H-U-R-T-E-R, is a German writer. His book has been translated, obviously, into English. And I was attracted to it because I'm intrigued by the subtitle, How Physics Changed the Way We See the World. And while I was reading the book, I suddenly remember Jacob Bronowski's series. So by way of background, the BBC in the late 1960s produced this stunning series with Sir Kenneth Clarke called Civilization, Mm -hmm. which looked at the role of art, music, etc., from the point of view of a European white male. They then decided to have a parallel series on science, how it also had evolved through the years. And Jacob Bronowski put it together. It's called The Ascent of Man, which is still available. It makes great viewing. Mm. In the period of the 1930s for Jacob Bronowski, there was this clash, as is revealed in the book. As I say, Bronowski is not mentioned in the book, but the book triggered my memory of this (laughs) remarkable passage with Jacob Bronowski's series. So in the 1930s, Bronowski, in his account of the history of science, looks at the way in which, on the one hand, Europe was dominated by political leaders who saw the world in black and white. And so you you had Stalin in the Soviet Union, Hitler in Germany, you had Mussolini in Italy, Franco in Spain, all dictators, all seeing the world in black and white because the citizens were shocked by what had gone on in the 20s and 30s with the Depression and Spanish Civil War, etc., and they wanted surety. They wanted everything in black and white. Meanwhile, completely separately, you had a group of scientists, which is covered in this book, like Werner Heisenberg, who just showed, in fact, there was nothing certain in the world. And Jacob Bronowski in the 1930s, covering the 1930s, is at Auschwitz, and he says this is, in effect, the price we pay for people who seek clarity in black and white in a world of ambiguity. Mm. And at that point, he walks into a pool. All of his relatives perished in the concentration camps. And he walks into a pool of water and scoops into the water and picks up ashes of the humans. Now, as I say, you can't do that today. Here we are 50 years later, 
Auschwitz has cleaned up as a site. It's still grim, but the ashes that you could see back in 1972 when he and I were there, that's all gone. So Mm. the site is cleaned up. But it's a very effective piece of television, one of the most memorable pieces of TV. And it shows this contrast between, on the one hand, the politicians who just deal with black and white issues, very clear, very determined, and at the same time, what the scientists were doing to erode our understanding of the reality of world affairs and this whole new development called quantum physics, which, to be quite honest, is totally beyond me. I've now read the book. I still don't understand it. <laughs> but I'm in, I'm in good company. You know, Einstein called it spooky science, the way that particles, for example, can communicate over huge distances either side of the universe. This is totally <laughs> over my head. Me I, too. <laughs> I, you know, you read the book and you're just left still confused. But for me, what is fascinating is that it's a challenge to our way of looking at the world Mm. because we've grown up with this sort of view from Isaac Newton that things can be predicted. It's a mechanical universe. It's a clockwork universe. Everything sort of fits together. Everything is predetermined. And yet you read this book and learn about Heisenberg and his colleagues and what's called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. And it means that you have to learn to live with ambiguity. And I was just thinking about that with some of our political leaders today. They can't cope with ambiguity Mm. because they think their supporters don't want ambiguity. They don't want nuance. They just want things dished up, black and white, and we know where we stand. Whereas science is saying, no, you can't do that now. Everything is relative. It's all uncertain. So I found it an absolutely fascinating book. As I say, it's heavy going, particularly for a kid who left school at the age of 15, so I've got a minimal background in science. <laughs> but it brings out the human side of science. You know, some of them were alcoholics. Some of them were womanizers. Some of them were incredibly ambitious. Einstein was, you know, giving away money, expecting he was going to get money from the Nobel Science Prize, which, of course, he did eventually get. He knew he was going to get it. You know, this is arrogance. These are really separate individuals but makes a rich tapestry when you look at science because I think the risk that we run with science is that you read about it and you assume that everything is so straightforward and yet there is obviously a very clear human element in all this scientific research. It's a a really fascinating book but I need to warn people it's heavy going. (laughs) If if you don't have a background in physics or maths, uh, it's interesting because many of the... People in the book themselves don't know much of the maths. They're complaining. (laughs) (laughs) They're finding it difficult as well. I'm in good company. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. So what is the sort of thing that it talks about in terms of the people who are responsible for this kind of new wave of thinking? Well, it's coming out of, as I say, this Newtonian paradigm of certainty. And so these are people who are trying to work out what exactly is the subatomic universe looking like. So we have a picture of an atom, for example, which is probably not very accurate. And so we're really all the time trying to find out exactly what is going on at the subatomic level. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that you're dealing with entities that are so small that when you try to measure it, you then disturb it. Right. If you want to sum up, in my view, quantum physics, you can't have your cake and eat it as well. (laughs) That's what it boils down to. So in other words, the act of measuring something itself disturbs it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got a series of trade-offs that you have to go through life with, which represents nuance. And the general public can't cope with nuance. They need things to be laid out nice and straightforward, not in an ambiguous way. But the physicists 
are encouraging us to learning to live with ambiguity. If Bronowski was having this conversation with people in the 60s, I feel like, you know, let's use COVID as an example. You know, there were people wanting absolutes and, like you said, people who wanted to understand exactly what was happening in no uncertain terms. I feel like it's human nature to kind of want that reassurance. It's reassurance, yeah. right? So I guess, you know, can we ever get to the point where we go, oh, you know, we can't answer that question because as humans we crave that certainty. Mm. How do we get there? What they're saying, in effect, is that you can't expect to have certainty in life. And that's now, fair. That makes sense. Well, it makes sense, but it's very threatening to people who do like to have certainty. Mm. They can't cope with uncertainty. I don't want to get deep, but I feel like that's where a lot of people and, you know, you look back into the the beginning of humankind is where they turn to religion to try and explain the big golden orb in the sky and why the crops grew at a certain time of year. And now people turn to religion as a way to try and feel better about death, I think. Um, and again, it's that thing of they want certainty, they want an answer. It's so against human nature to go, what'll be, will be. Like, we yeah. can't control it. It's really fascinating. In terms of the people that were discussed in this book, how did they change the world? Well, the problem is that a lot of them didn't change the world because we're still, as you say, <laughs> dealing with the general public. In the Western world, I think that in the Eastern world, and Heisenberg became very interested in Eastern metaphysics. He recognised in Eastern religions, so he was brought up as a Lutheran Christian, so he comes out of that Judeo-Christian point of view. And he was saying, well, it may well be the world is a lot more ambiguous and lacking in clarity, and that's what you can pick up in Asian religions mm. rather than the certainty that's true. Of, the, of the Western religions. So it's a, a challenge, I think, to our mindset did physics change the world? In one sense, it has. The fact that we're sitting here in a recording studio with all of this scientific gizmo around us, mm. clearly we are being changed by science. Every day. But our outlook on the world is still that of black and white. But mm. you've got other people who are saying that we've got these huge changes that are coming, which we're reluctant to grapple with. That's why so often in this series, we're dealing with the whole problem of computers and the doubling power of computers. And we're issuing all these warnings about the uh, loss of jobs, what social media, for example, are doing to our way of thinking about the world. Mm. But we're not addressing those issues. We're just going along with the flow. We're not challenging where the flow is going. Thought-provoking. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Thanks for your company this week. As we discuss a recent book that's delving into the history of physics and how it changed the world. Keith, this book talks about how a group of physicists toppled the, quote, Newtonian era. How important was that? You know, we've, we've spoken about it in terms of the absolutes. Was there any flow-on effects that we've seen into society, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later? For the ordinary person, the answer is no. But if you are a scientist, the answer is a very profound yes because of the impact, for example, of quantum computing. Mm. This takes me into an area, I go to all these lectures, I still don't understand quantum <laughs> computing, but everybody agrees that quantum computing is going to transform our world. And this is the guy, Heisenberg, who took us down that original path of quantum thinking. And so with quantum computing, we will end up with a system whereby all of your passwords will be hacked. Right. Right. <laughs> Good news. So there we are. 
So, you know, the, oh. the, there will be big changes occurring, but science goes on and we're too busy looking at the surface and the sporting results and TB celebrities, etc. But underneath, science is changing rapidly and the ordinary people like you and me, we're not really following what is going on, but we will feel the impact of it ultimately. Even though we don't see it at work at the moment, we will be clobbered by it in a few years to come. The interesting point made by the book as well is the quote-unquote consequences of some of the advancements. There's a parallel drawn between nuclear weaponry and how the discovery of radioactivity got us there. And I guess the questions it asks, and also in the video you shared with me, was it worth it? What do you think? It's interesting. The book finishes in 1945, so it's the beginning of the nuclear era. Mm. Heisenberg himself stayed in Germany during World War II. As a Lutheran Christian, he wasn't threatened. People like Einstein, et cetera, had to flee the continent to escape Nazi persecution. He was able to stay on. He was part of a, a nuclear research group who looked at the development, perhaps, of nuclear power that had meetings with Speer, the um, Minister for Munitions, Minister for Supply in Hitler's government. And there was some doubt as to how much progress could be made by the Germans in nuclear power or nuclear weapons. And it was never really, thankfully, never really a top priority. And that became obvious at the end of the war when the British and Americans got into Germany and they were able to see it and they realised that the fears that they expressed had actually been exaggerated and that the Germans were nowhere near making progress. Even though a lot of the activities in the book are based in Germany, Mm. the Germans themselves were very slow to go down that nuclear weapon path, thankfully. Mm. And what I found fascinating, by the way, is that one of Heisenberg's students was Rudolf Piles, and I knew him towards the end of his life when Sir Rudolf was a professor at Oxford and he and I served on a disarmament committee. And he was one of those nuclear scientists who had become so appalled at the development of nuclear weapons that they then became anti-nuclear campaigners. <laughs> so I was in distinguished company with this professor from Oxford, Sir Rudolf Piles, who was complaining about the nuclear weapons. And what they would say is the misuse of science. Mm. You know, they, they went into this area of nuclear research thinking that they could uncover how atomic energy works or, you know, the, the whole subatomic world, etc. They didn't go into it the business of making weapons. And yet at the end of their lives, that's what they were seeing. And they were very unhappy with what had happened. Yeah, I think Bronowski makes the point it's not the fault of the scientists, it's the fault of mankind and how they and, use that yeah, stuff. How sci- yeah, particularly the British and the Americans, how they mobilise these nuclear physics experts to make weaponry. In the blurb as well, the book seeks to remind us of the entanglement of world events and science. What do you think that means? I found the book very interesting because I say I'm not a physicist, I don't have a background in science, but it shows how science and physics work together to shape the world. You could say the same about biology and politics as well, particularly when we look at some of the big biological breakthroughs that we're now seeing, that in fact there is an entanglement, again a quantum expression, (laughs) there's an entanglement between these different worlds which we tend to keep separate. So if you're in an Australian school, you are taught a class on physics or chemistry, another one perhaps on politics and geography. And yet truly all of those work together 
in different ways to affect each other. So it goes back almost to this notion of nuance or complexity, which is the other big issue. And so what this fellow is saying is that with nuclear physics generally, it has a, a global impact. But then you get a Hitler coming to power mm. and suddenly all the progress being made by Jewish scientists in Germany gets disrupted because they've got to flee the country. Heisenberg is not one of them because he's a Christian. Mm. He's not persecuted, but a lot of his colleagues are driven out of the country or killed because they're Jewish. So that's how you have an impact of a political ideology and how it shapes scientific research by just simply forcing them out of the country. And politics also, of course, affected nuclear researchers we've just touched on by the development of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. So there is this close entanglement between physics and politics or between chemistry and politics, biology and politics. One has to see the world in an interconnected way, which is what I try to bring out in this series of programs, that we're looking at the world as a complex system, a complex adaptive system as a technical term, and how all the bits and pieces fit together and affect one another. Now, the bad news is that if it's a complex world, it's a very difficult world to predict. Correct. Right? Now, if you're Isaac Newton, he's told you how to predict where the moon will be 500 years from now, right? That's Newtonian physics. Mm -hmm. But when you get down to this subatomic level, things are not so easy to predict. That's your problem. We have to learn to live with ambiguity and complexity. And it's very different from our point of view at the moment. We in the European mode of thinking, which invented in Europe 500 years ago. Remember, this we're talking about the weird world. Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. We have a clear way of looking at the world and it's reductionist. In other words, you want to break everything down into small pieces. So you end up with different academic disciplines, then you have sub-disciplines, etc. Whereas I think there's a whole new way emerging which shows complexity and the related nature of things. Remember, we've dealt with Professor Susan Simard, who is a Canadian researcher on trees. And she's shown how trees communicate with each other yes. through their roots and the exchange of chemicals. When she first started that research, the scientists were horrified. How can trees communicate with each other? How can they warn of a person coming into the forest? And she's now been able to demonstrate that. And she's demonstrating the complexity of life in the forest. Ironically, she comes from a a line of foresters who are used to cutting down trees. <laughs> now she's saying, don't murder trees. And so this book shows the connectedness between politics and physics. It's a really good book to get through if you're able to follow. As I say, it's not the easiest book to follow, but it's one of the most stimulating I've read for a long time. Well, even just this chat today, Keith, has been very thought-provoking for me and our listeners, I'm sure. Thank you once again for bringing us such an exciting and interesting topic to discuss. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic.